Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, I'm your host Jared Van Hees and welcome to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. This episode is another game plan style episode where we're going to dive into a recent hunt, actually two hunts on this podcast, decipher what the success strategies were and how you guys can take the strategy and put them in your own book of tricks for the upcoming week in the bow season here. It's mid-season. And on this episode, we're going to cover four key things to keep in mind during the bow season. We're also going to cover my recent doe harvest, my buddy Jason's eight-point harvest, and what went into those hunts. And lastly, we're going to talk about what we've learned about CWD deer check uh, processes here in Michigan, um, what we know about that so far. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast. I want to thank the Packer Max line of Cult of Packers and the Habitat Hook from Nations Creations for sponsoring the podcast. Couldn't do it without the trust from you guys and your great companies. So with that being said, guys, let's get right into the strategy and the game plan used uh, this past week on a couple nice deer harvested. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I have my friend Jason Lewis on the line. Jason, you there, buddy? Yes, sir. Good evening. Hey, how you doing, man? Great. Fine night. Good, good. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fine Tuesday night. Yeah, nothing crazy over here. Um, you had a story of a buck you harvested recently, and... And I wanted to get you on and talk about the game plan. And then I shot a doe over the weekend. I want to kind of mention that as well first. Um, but let's get a little bit about you, maybe how you and I met. And um, then before your story, we'll, we'll throw in my doe. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I love what you're doing here with this podcast. I'm really happy to be here. Um, oh, I've got welcome. an hour-long commute to work each day. And it really helps me get through that drive time. And um, in terms of agreeing <laughs> to come on and share my story, I'm, I'm really just hoping that sharing some of the strategies and tactics that I've picked up on along the way with these various podcasts I listen to uh, that I've been able to apply to my hunting could possibly help some others that are listening tonight. Oh, of course. Awesome. So you live in Howell, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm from Howell, lived here since 93. Okay, and so I'm not too far from you, and where do you hunt at? I hunt out in, in Livingston County. Yeah, yep. 
Okay, and tell me about the property out there. Is it uh, a pretty big place? I kind of already know the answer to these questions, but I'm trying to paint a picture for everybody else. So go ahead and give us an explanation about the property. Sure. It's uh, three different properties, actually, and it totals about 240 acres. And it's your standard southern Michigan agriculture. Uh, probably 80% of it is tillable. Oh, wow. And it's bordered by the standard fence rows and woodlots, and so it hunts an awful lot smaller than the total acreage accounts for, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, since you have 20% of the cover and a place to put a stand, if you will. Um, funny story, I actually met you at that QDMA pint night, what was that, probably a month ago already, at uh, with Josh Hilliard over there, and um, long story short, we actually I actually used to hunt a property that borders the one you're currently hunting. Is that right? Yeah, that's quite a coincidence, <laughs> and it just reinforces the idea of a small world, you know. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we're sitting there uh, talking over a beer, and he's like, "Where where do you hunt in Fowlerville?" And I, I told him, and we get the maps out, and I, I just met this guy. And, and uh, no joke, I hunted a little five-acre backyard, if you will, that butts up to that big woodlot on your south side there. And uh, you're, that was hilarious. You were like, were you the guy trespassing back there? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I swear, I swear. I, uh, it yeah, wasn't me. And honestly, it wasn't. I um, The deer I shot kind of ran to the... Uh, southeast, if you will, away from that property line onto somebody else's. But um, it was pretty funny that, uh, you know, what just a small world. We were actually hunted right next to each other for the last how many years? It's just crazy. Yep. But, okay, so you're hunting out in Fowlerville. Um, and then, well, basically, I'm thinking we just, before we get too much into your, your buck story, I think your buck story is more exciting. Um, and I want to tell the, my doe story real quick, if that's cool, with you. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. So I was also out over the weekend. Um, you were on Thursday. I was on Sunday. And my story seemed fairly simple. I don't think there's a, a ton people can take away from it, but I wanted to tell it because it was kind of exciting. Um, I was hunting the edge of a swamp, so I was on an acorn filled oak ridge that goes down to the swamp and uh, I assume the deer were, were bedded out there um, I actually saw some deer bedded out there the Friday night I hunted and I passed a couple does waiting for a buck and none of them ever came in but um, about 6.15 I had a group of does come in and I tell you what man trying to get this all on film and and stop the doe in the right shooting lane and and just all the trees and foliage, it was just a cluster, I tell you what. Um, yeah, I got a lot of respect for you guys that can film your hunts. That's a level of detail and complexity that I can't even imagine to take on at this point. Uh, yeah, if you ever get bored, you should try it because it's, it's definitely not boring. Um, <laughs> but no, I appreciate that. It it was tough, and and honestly, it... It was it was a pain that day, and I the third doe to come through, I was able to stop in my lane. And after trying to stop the deer before that, they were kind of on to me, you know. By stopping, I do the little or whatever the the doe bleep. So I stopped this third one, and her her neck is kind of behind this tree, and I go to the right of that and. I settle in, and mind you, I've been uh, drawn back for over a minute at this point. So, because I drew on the on the first doe that came in, she didn't give me a shot. I drew in the second one, or I was still drawn. She didn't give me a shot, and then uh, it was quite a little bit of time before the third one stepped into the lane. So I let the arrow go, got a complete pass through. Um, I hit behind the shoulder, probably mid mid height, and probably eight inches back behind the shoulder. A little bit further back and a little bit lower than I wanted to hit from that steep of an angle up in the tree, but uh, 
It sounded good. It blew right through, and she took off with the rest of them. So that's that's all fine and dandy. They're you know eating acorns and and sneaking out of the swamp, and I got a shot, and that's great. I go back to my my buddy's house, and we look at the arrow. It's just covered in blood. I, th- I thought, you know what? I felt a little worried about the shot, but the arrow's covered. Um, let's give her a couple hours and go back out there. Well, two hours later, we actually jumped her about 30 yards into the track. Wow. And that's when I I knew, I'm like, we, we need to get out of here. And uh, I, I kind of had that feeling from right when I shot her, but the arrow looked so good, and we just went to check it out. And she bedded down about 30 yards from where I shot her. So she didn't go very far into the swamp before she bedded down. But we jumped her. We got out, and I went home feeling like crap, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd tell my wife and explain to her, and then, you know, just thinking about it all night long. And I, I called the tracking dog, got him ready just in case I needed him in the morning, and uh, he was happy enough to, to oblige and, well, long story short, we went out there Sunday morning. I'm sorry, Monday morning at this point. I had to take the first half of the day off. And we get back on the track, and we're in this thick, nasty dogwood. And we we followed some tracks and some blood um, across the creek and came up the other side. And she didn't go, you know, 40 yards further than when we first jumped her. Okay. So, um you know, I think my shot was pretty good. I after when I when I got her, got her, I got a, I center punched the liver and I caught the back of both lungs. So I mean, it's a lethal shot, but I just um, I wish it would have been a little further forward into those lungs, you know. Yeah, yeah, those are tough ones. I mean, that's an emotional roller coaster that you're riding when you you you're all hyped up on adrenaline from the shot sequence, and then. You feel good, and then you don't feel good, and then you try to follow the track, and that doesn't go well, and and that long walk home, basically, you're trying to figure out what do I do next. I mean, I think we've all been through that, and it's it's gut wrenching. Yeah, it, I have to agree. I mean, I can never be one of those guys who just you know blows off. Eh, it's only a doe. Forget about it, and you know move on. I I feel I feel a big responsibility as soon as you let that arrow fly, and. Uh, you know, go from feeling good when I when I let the arrow go to feeling kind of crummy to seeing the arrow and feeling good again. Jumping her, feeling crummy all night, and the, yeah, so you're yeah, you're, totally you're right about that roller coaster, man. It's uh, it, it ended up being a a lethal shot, um, like I said, but I'm I'm just so afraid of center punching that shoulder that I kind of stay back off that mm-hmm. shoulder a little ways. I don't know about you, but that's kind of I have a fear of sticking that shoulder. Yeah, I understand that totally. And I made a shot on a deer a few years ago, and the three-blade muzzy went right through the shoulder blade and left that triangle mark when we butchered that deer out. It's like, wow, look at this. I can't believe it penetrated right through. Holy and God. the broadhead was fine coming out. The arrow snapped when the deer took off, but the broadhead was fine. And that deer died within 100 yards. And it was kind of a learning experience for me. And since that time, I've really made a concerted effort to to avoid the last couple of ribs, which is a little bit what you're describing. Yeah, uh, for sure. I did that many a time. I hit deer a little far back, and it leads to that long track job and maybe a messy gutting job. And it's like, okay, I got to focus a little more on moving that pin or crosshairs a little bit forward and kind of aim almost directly above the front leg. And, yeah, you risk that shoulder blade, but, man, when, when you hit it right, I mean, they're dead in, like, 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, and and that's, you know, that's, I, I need to start doing more of that. I mean, honestly, I don't know about you, but the, the, the first year of the year, and maybe even every deer, I, I get so excited, I kind of black out in the moment, and, uh, I mean, there's times where I have to remember to actually look through my peep sight, like, like I get the pin, I get up, like, oh, Jerry, look through the peep sight, like, just so excited, and, and just, you know, you got the opportunity, it's like, I need to, I need to work on getting that last, 
maybe three seconds more under control. Um, and maybe that's just the first year of the year, or or maybe it happens with every deer, but it's uh, it's something I need to work on. And, yeah, like, like you said, maybe a lesson for everybody else, if you can, you know, just stay off the – the back couple ribs a little a little bit more you'd be better off uh you know it sounds like maybe where you shot your buck that we're about to hear about it was a little bit better of a shot uh it it was i mean they're both (laughs) lethal shots like you said yeah but um yeah i I heard mine fall and um was able to just walk up on it so all right well before we get any more details about that jason i don't i want to hear it from from the beginning so sorry to interrupt you and tell the doe story there but I had to get that out there, and uh, a couple things we learned from it we'll talk about in the end. But let's let's go back to any habitat work you did on your farm this summer, and then let's get right into the hunting season, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on your doe. And oh, thank you. For sure. Oh, thank you so much. She's going to be a good eater, for sure. Yeah. So let me start with four quick bullet points that help uh, like you said, paint the picture for what we're trying to accomplish. Perfect. And number one is that over the last handful of years, for me, I've been hunting this property since 2010, and I'm a guest on the property. My friend is actually the one that has the direct permission, and um, I'm blessed just to get the chance to go out there and hunt. But he's been hunting out there for like 20 years. Okay. So for, over all that time, he's bought stands and set up stands, et cetera, et cetera. And at this point, we've got 22 different locations set up with hang-on stands or prepped for a climber across these three properties. Wow. So number one, it gives us lots of options depending on weather, wind, morning, night, whatever conditions we come across. 22, yeah, that's quite a lot. Okay, continue. it's a lot, and it helps. But secondly, what we've really tried to do over the last couple of years is is develop a network of access trails to really help our entry and exit and minimize that pressure, especially early in the year. We think that it, it's it's definitely limited our, our sightings as the season starts, and then by the time it even starts to get good in November, we're starting to see the impact of all the hunts that we're um, – participated in out on this property. And when I talk about the number of times we hunt each year, um, it's quite a lot. I mean, we we get a chance to get out there maybe 30 or 40 hunts per season. I view that as quite a few, uh, considering a full-time job and family and all the other pressures that come along. Now, is that you personally or your whole group? Uh, that would be me personally. Wow, and usually good for you. Going, then there's usually at least two. There's a total of three guys that hunt out there, and um, usually there's at least two of us going, which I think is good for safety reasons. Yeah, I I would totally agree. I, but 30, 30 to forty hunts that's that's pretty good. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, and so I talk about that network of access trails. It's it's really rather easy to do if you have a sturdy weed whip and a backpack blower. You can take Saturdays during the summer. And Saturday morning, get out there and, and spend three, four hours, and you'd be surprised at how much easier you can make your hunting access and how many more options you'll get if you put in that time. Now, that's easy for me to say. A lot of guys listening right now, maybe fishermen, maybe golfers, they don't have every Saturday. But um, the fact of the matter is we've found a lot of benefit to taking that time. And we put in probably 125 man hours. This past off season, uh, maybe scouting, um, looking for new stand sets, adjusting stands, creating these entry and exit trails. We did a few other water hole projects and scrape trees and, and just little odds and ends. But number two bullet point there is we really wanted to focus on entry and exit so that it, it didn't impact the deer once we started hunting. Beautiful. And are those access trails, the network of trails, are they more concentrated on the outside of the property or are you just talking you keep it mowed close to the ground so you're not getting your scent, you know, two, three foot in the air? The one that we worked on this past season, spent a lot of time on it, it, it's on the far western border 
of this property, and it allows us to get all the way from the road all the way to the back without driving the truck through the farm field, basically. And that's something we've never done before. And one of the words I'm going to bring up over and over in my story here today is discipline. And I think what we're trying to do is better discipline ourselves so that we don't just drive the farmer's two-track to get to the very back of the property where the woods are and thereby alerting every deer in the, the woods that we're there. So we're trying to park up by the road away from the property and uh, take the footpath, get back there undetected. Now, the listeners are probably saying, well, of course you're not going to drive all the way through the property and get to the woods. But let me tell you, sometimes past practices are hard to break. <laughs> when you got a guy that's been hunting out there for 20 years doing it a certain way, it takes a little bit of time to work through it and say, yeah, I know we've always done it this way, but if we're going to hunt older deer, maybe we got to change things up a little bit to get to where we want to go. Good point. Old habits die hard. Good point. They sure do. And so so number two was entry and exit. And then number three, just as the off-season prep, as I kind of lay this out, it's leave it alone. So the other thing we've done in years past is had to focus a lot of our effort in prep in August and even into September, um, almost leading right up to the season, just because of a busy work life or family life, things going on. But this year we wanted to get it done early. We spent a lot of time in turkey season, actually. Uh, we went out there and hunted some birds, and then we spent the rest of the days working on these trails. And then when it came to August, we didn't have quite as much work to do. So um, that allowed us to, to stay out of there a little earlier. And full disclosure, we did have to take a couple Saturdays in September just to finish up some of our field edge, uh, more low-impact sand sites. But, but, yeah, number three, just trying to leave it alone as that season was coming in and make sure those deer were, were – um, not bothered. Okay, yeah, you're speaking my language so far. I like it. Yeah, and then the last thing, and just kind of the preseason prep again, I'm sure everybody's doing this, but we've got like nine cameras set out on these three different properties, and we really like to get an inventory on what's there. So number four is just knowing your herd. And I feel like it really has helped me a lot personally. If I know what's out there, if you're going to try to be selective on the types of deer, the age class of deer that you're going after, to, to know what's there so that you don't get caught off guard in the moment and, uh, like you said, kind of go into panic mode or automatic mode or blackout mode <laughs> and just end up shooting before you realize what you've done. Yep. And believe me, I've been there. Yep. But, um, yeah, knowing you're hurt a little bit ahead of time, keeping that inventory, all really good tactics or strategies that we've employed that I think have helped us quite a bit. That's awesome. So can you list those four real quick once more? So talking about lots of options, we got those 22 tree stand locations set up for various wind directions or morning or night or type of crop, whether it's beans or corn. Uh, sometimes they're good on a cornfield edge. Sometimes they're better on a beanfield edge type okay. thing. But, but lots of options, watching our entry and exit, leave it alone, get out of there and, and don't bother the deer right before season. And then number four, keeping that inventory and knowing your herd so you're a little better informed when it comes time to make the shot that um, not necessarily that you know exactly the deer that you're after, but um, w when you know that the older deer exist or the bigger bucks exist, it gives you that pause when you're looking at some of the younger ones. And, and maybe you say, yeah, I've seen that buck on camera. I think he's younger. I think I'll wait. Maybe there's a bigger one coming. Yep. Yep. Those are all things that have helped me out a ton since I started hunting down in Livingston County since 2010. And I started up in Ogemaw County, and before that I hunted Grand Traverse County. And the deer herd down here is way different. Just the body size is bigger, the antlers tend to be bigger, a lot better opportunities, very thankful for it. Yeah, yeah, some of the you – know, those are four great points. Thank you for, for listing those. And uh, – but some of the up north hunting that you came from, I mean, it's it's tough up there. And but those chocolate antlered bucks sure are pretty. I agree. Yep, they all are. Yeah, <laughs> I've never shot one up there, but uh, they're uh, I see a lot of pictures these days from the the APR zone and this and that. And they're just it's just nice up there, um, and beautiful country too. But yeah. So 
keeping in, in the theme of the Habitat podcast, a lot of things I'm describing there don't really relate to Habitat per se. We don't do a lot of work um, on bedding cover or hinge cutting. I mean, we clear trees out for the footpaths. That, that, that's kind of about it. Okay. But um, before I jump into some of the more specific tactics for the season, I do have one quick tip that we found some success with. Great. And if you're hunting free permission or leased property, and you're fairly limited on your ability to alter the landscape like we are, maybe consider asking for permission to just put a food plot in the corner of the crop field. A lot of times these are low-yield areas, and they're frequented by deer and raccoons anyway, so they wipe out the crops. The farmers know this, and the chances are it's going to cost you either very little or or probably even nothing to, to buy that section of ground from the farmer and put in a clover plot or put in um, some other food source, uh, if they can give you that chance to put in that small plot, it'd be an excellent spot to inventory deer during the summer, especially when you have a corn on the background of that, and to provide a food source in the winter once all those crops are harvested. That's something we have actually done with respect to habitat management, but it's really about the extent of things. Okay. Well, no, thanks for that tip there. Um, I think it's a great idea. And as long as you can keep the farmer from uh, spraying that corner when he's spraying the rest of the field uh, in the in the summer, uh, you're you're doing good. We we did that over in one of our properties and uh, got good germination. Everything's coming up. Next thing you know, the whole thing's dead. Uh, we think the guy just hit it with Roundup along with the rest of his beans that year. You know, so. Yeah, you're right. That would be a risk. Thankfully, we have an excellent <laughs> relationship with the farmer, and, and that doesn't happen very often. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Well, now I kind of have a picture of what's going on here. Um, let's get into the hunt. How's your season been going, and, and let's hear how you killed this, this nice deer. Okay. Well, yeah, it's been going really well, and the one thing uh, in terms of our in-season tactics, once the season started to approach, and what, what I just really felt in my gut is that we needed to limit the number of times we went and checked those trail cams. So we already had the inventory of deer. I shared some of those pictures with you at the QDMA pint night, and it's always exciting to look at trail cam photos. But we knew what was there, so it's like there's no reason to keep checking those cameras, even though you want to, and we all want to. But um, we always checked them, and, and we'd get excited and We'd want to see what was there and see if new bucks are there and see if they put on more growth than they had two weeks ago. And what we found, though, is as we got into September, it's like, okay, let's just sit back. Again, let's leave it alone. Let's not go in there. Let's not um, impact the deer like we've done in years past. And then even once the season began, what our past practice was was to take the cam trail cam cards with us and if we were hunting anywhere near a camera, go over there before the hunt and take the disc and swap it and bring it back and let's check pictures. Well, that might only be 50 yards out of your way past the stand, but it's still 50 yards worth of footpath that you're putting down, potentially impacting future deer. Yes, sir. That but would be... I couldn't agree more. Yeah, exactly. So we backed off on that. Okay. Now, secondly... I think you'll agree we've had some really nice weather to start this 2018 season. It's been great. Oh, definitely. Um, more cooler weather than I'm used to this early in the year, that's for sure, especially that October 12th or 13th front. That that was super early, so that's all good. Yeah, I agree, and i got to hand it to Tony Smith at QDMA because he keeps posting these forecasts on Michigan sportsmen saying, here comes the cold front. You better get ready. Yep, yep. And I tell you, we've had a few pretty good hunts, and all of our good hunts have coincided with these predicted good movement days, which was October 4th, October 12th, October 18th. Okay, there it is. My buddy killed one on October 12th. That one was also 175 pounds. That was a nice buck. Yeah. And I killed one on October 18th. And then on October 4th, I actually saw a pretty nice buck, but I opted not to attempt the shot just because he looked like he didn't have a real big body, you know, maybe 150-pounder or so, and he had rather short tines. And when I went into this year, 
uh, one of my goals going in was really to look for a buck that had tines as long as his ears. And I was just trying to create that goal for myself and maybe step it up from what I'd done in years past. Oh, cool. And, and that was the way I looked at it. That's actually a good way to look at it. Um, and before we get too far into that, actually October 4th, I believe, was the day that Jake Elinger killed his buck, uh, the first game plan podcast we did. So it's not just a coincidence these deer are dropping on these cold fronts, guys. It's... Uh, it's it's quite a pattern and something that I've started incorporating into my strategy about probably four or five years ago. Um, but no, that that uh, tine length to to the ear length, I've never heard that. That's interesting um, because the younger deer do have shorter tines. And uh, also something you could think about, Jason, the the main beam length. Um, the, if their if their head is turned broadside, if you will, where you could see the time length, um, if you judge how far that main beam goes out, uh, usually, you know, out to the nose or or past the nose, or but out usually out that far is is a good main beam, from what I've been told uh, on Michigan deer, and then uh, I've shot plenty that are that are not near out that far, but. That's where. <laughs> that's just another way where you can maybe look for that that slightly older deer uh, by judging them on the hoof like that. Yeah, good advice. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, I, I'm gonna actually look at a couple of my mounts. Uh, I got one behind me here, and yeah, he's got a super long main beam, but um, he was an older deer. But like the one I shot last year, I, have, I think was a three year old, and he's got a he got a fairly long main beam, uh, but it's not. It's not way out there like maybe a four or a five year old deer would have. So, but anyways, we digress. Uh, let's get back into into your hunt. So, you yeah, had a couple so of hunts. We, we had hunted October fourth. We hunted the twelfth. We hunted the eighteenth, and then we those were all really good hunts. And then we also hunted on the sixth, the eighth, and the thirteenth, with just kind of varied results mixed in. One of those days was really rainy and stormy, and it was bad. And, and other days, I, I just got skunked and this and that. So I can't really say for sure that the temperature drop with that rising barometer was the total baseline for success here. But I can say that looking at that forecast and and those posts on Michigan Sportsman and getting amped up about getting back to the woods with this ultra high confidence, it's got a way of distracting a guy from his day job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so last Wednesday... I'm looking at my calendar for Thursday, and I had nothing on it. I'm like, okay, I'm taking tomorrow off. It, it's going to be perfect. Decision made. Check that box. I'm I'm clear. So now we all struggle with the next question. I know you can relate. What stand do I take? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, I don't know about you, but the first thing I look at is wind, wind direction. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I kept watching the wind. Every few hours, I'm looking at my Scout Look app. I want to see what it's doing now. What is it going to do at 5 p.m.? What's it going to do at 7 p.m.? I really wanted to get back to this climber set on the one north side property, and no one had hunted back there yet this year, and we had summer pictures back there, this really nice 8-point and a 10-point, and I'm getting all wound up. I'm knowing that the predicted west-south-west wind for that Thursday was absolutely going to be wrong for this location. Oh, and no. this is where that discipline comes in. Okay? You've got to fight that urge when you know better. The little devil is going to be on your shoulder saying, come on, one time won't hurt. Get in there, take advantage of the cold front. Yeah. But here's the thing. It was only October 18th. Yeah. And our hunting doesn't usually even get good until November. When I look back at the log books and when we kill deer and when we killed bucks, it's always November. So what do I do? Do I give in to this temptation and go against my strategy that I've laid out for the entire year just because I'm all wound up with this cold front? Or am I going to stay calm, work the plan, be patient, well, thankfully, one of the other friends on Michigan Sportsman said, hey, it's still early. So he's basically saying what I already knew, which is don't go in there on the wrong wind. Uh, play it safe. Play it smart. 
Um, so, okay, at that point, I just tried to settle myself down, follow the logical course of action, and, again, the, for the purpose of keeping the pressure low. So it's still October 18th. We've got almost a month of season left before firearm begins, and there's no reason to push it just yet. No, and there's a lot of people who can probably relate to that, Jason. I, uh, I mean, because you hear these guys – talking about getting aggressive right and you hear or i should say you see these bucks dropping right off the bat in october so you kind of you kind of get that feeling like man maybe i should go do this or, or maybe i should do that and, and get right in there and uh yeah exactly you see you guys places, it works, the deer they're but, killing, yeah and my buddy killed one the week before and it's like okay i want to get on this too but it's like right. all right, right relax follow the plan so so now it's wednesday night before my Thursday day off, now the next decision I'm faced with is do I go out in the morning or not? So I don't go hunt the private land unless Jeff's going to. That's just kind of our rule. So looking at that forecast for Thursday morning, it was going to be beautiful. It was going to be cold, calm, frosty, pretty much everything we all dream about for deer season. So in the past, given that kind of forecast, I would have hiked my climber out to Brighton Wreck, and I would have been set up on one of my favorite oak ridges that morning to take advantage of that weather. Yep. Here's the thing. I knew I'd never be able to get back on that ridge on a calm day like it was without alerting every deer within earshot. True. I knew if I made that trek back to the state land, I'd probably end up having to rush home after the hunt, try to get some chores done, treat all my clothes to descent them, treat the boots, etc., and probably end up having to rush to get ready for the evening hunt. So why does this matter? Well, because once you get rushed, you start to lose that discipline. So bottom line, I decided to just pass on the morning hunt so I could attend to everything appropriately, uh, taking some time and shooting my bow, make sure I'm fully prepared for the evening hunt, and and with respect to the bow, I mean, practicing all summer, very common. But continuing to practice throughout the season often requires a little bit more discipline. True. You don't want to backslide there. Okay, so now to the hunt. Like, like I told you, I'm blessed. I have great access, great property. Um, he and I met up that afternoon, discussed the best strategy for the evening hunt according to that wind direction. Uh, he, he usually gets first choice. I'm fine with that. He agreed to take a stand on the south half of the main property, the one that um, you're familiar with, Jared, from, from hunting that five-acre piece. Gotcha. And the other half of the main property really isn't set up well at all for a west-southwest wind, and that's where he had just killed the deer the week before. So just basically we decided to let that one sit. And once Jeff made that selection – to hunt that south side property. In order to stay disciplined, I had to take up a set on the other property, the one down the road, and it's the one with the least likelihood of seeing a nice buck. Okay. Supposed. So I'll paint a quick picture of that property. It's a square 40-acre piece. It's got tillable farmland right up to the road that creates the south border. And then the north property line is situated within a narrow wood lot that extends all the way from the west side to the east side. And then it turns 90 degrees to the south. So it's kind of an L-shaped wood at the north border of this 40 acres. Okay, got it. The woods continues on beyond the property border. Right. So as I mentioned, it's typical southern Michigan ag land. I can see houses in almost every direction I look. If I can't see them, I can hear kids playing or cars approaching or what have you. But um, the deer typically enter the property I'm hunting either from the northwest corner or from the northeast corner, and then they cross one way or another across the property to find whatever their preferred feeding location is going to be in the crops. This year it's beans. So with this west-southwest wind, I selected a tree just inside the woods in the northwest corner of this property. This gave me a short 20-yard walk through the leaves, which if you remember that day, they were really crispy and crunchy. And that short 20-yard walk hopefully would let me go undetected to any deer bedded to my north 
and it would certainly give me a good undisturbed entry for any deer bedded in or near that woodlot, which is the the base of that L-shaped woods on the far east side of the property. Okay. So now, with respect to the scent cone, this stand location was going to create a scent cone, a downstream scent cone that aimed in the least likely direction of approach from the deer. So I felt like I was really safe in that spot, and this would still allow deer to enter the bean field from the north or from the east and have that wind blowing across its nose. So and now I heard, if I'm wrong, it's kind of like an just off wind. The deer are still going to be moving south into the wind towards the beans, but your wind is going to be going off to see, south, off to the east further. Yeah, that's the way I looked at that. Yep. And, and on a video once upon a time or a show, I heard Stan Potts say that um, you, you got to hunt the wind where the buck thinks he's got you, but he yep. doesn't have you. Exactly. And I really had to let that sink in for a while before I could really understand what it was trying to say. And, and um, I, I don't know, maybe I'm too simple for that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I had to think it through. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I think I'm starting to get it. Well, hey, it took me a long time to really to really figure that out too. Uh, you know, there's there's a safe wind direction where you just the deer would have to come downwind, you know, where where your wind is blowing the total opposite direction. But uh, a lot of the deer I've seen this year, especially the bucks, they move into the wind. Uh, not always, they'll move across left to right like a crosswind. They'll come downwind sometimes. Maybe if they're going to circle down into something or they have their eyeballs on something. But that just off wind, like you said, where the, the bucks think that they're smelling everywhere in the woodlot and the and the bean field that's safe, but your wind is just off to the left or off to the right a little bit. Does that sound yep, about right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. And in most cases, it's worked for me there um, exactly from that same setup. So Okay, perfect. In this case, I got in clean. I uh, didn't spook any deer. You know, most of my walk is back through the edge of the bean field. But, okay, I get back there. I pop into the woods. I I log in and check in on the live from the stand uh, with Michigan Sportsman, with, which is something that's just kind of fun to do. And I settled in for the evening hunt. So about an hour before dusk, I hear this rustling noise, unlike that of any of the squirrels that I had seen scurrying about in the woods. <laughs> And it took me a minute to realize it was deer running through the dry beans. Oh, wow. And so they're running from east to west over my left shoulder. I'm sitting up in my climber. I'm facing west. And I I look over my left shoulder. They're running across the field. It's two does. And a couple minutes later, I hear that noise again. I look, raise the binoculars. It's a little buck. And they're, they're maybe 100 yards out or so. And they disappear through the fence row to the west. And I never saw him again. Okay. So the hunt continues. I didn't see anything else. And now it's getting to the point where I start thinking about, okay, where am I going to hunt Saturday? What's the weather going to be like? <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, that was our next scheduled hunt. And this one's just about in the books. And I hear that telltale sign again of a deer moving through the beans. And I slowly look over my left shoulder, and I see this big-bodied deer. And I raised up my binoculars to get a better look, and I just got a quick glance through the field-edge maples at at this buck as he kind of turned and faced in my direction. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a nice buck. So I dropped the binoculars. I grabbed my bow, tried to get a range on where this deer is going to be crossing through one of these shooting lanes between the maples into the beans, the buck standing in the beans. And the rangefinder is saying it's like 40 yards. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm not too thrilled about that. that. That's quite a distance for me to be shooting. So I couldn't believe it when the buck starts angling towards me. And I ranged again out in front of him, and it looked like it was going to be right at 30 yards. And I set the rangefinder down, drew the bow, and the buck moves right into the shooting lane and stops. And I took a moment to confirm my sight was level, uh, make sure I had picked the 30-yard pin, make sure the aim's true, and then I just slowly squeeze that 
trigger. And the shot broke, and the buck wheeled, and he did that hard, charging flatline run directly away from me to the south, uh, right down the row of beans. And I tried to get my binoculars up on him. As, as he kind of slowed to a stop, he's standing out there. And just as he came into view in my binoculars, he turns hard to the right and disappeared from view because of the tree canopy that's along the steel edge. I just couldn't see him anymore. But I heard this big crash in the beans, and at that point I was really optimistic oh, nice. that, uh, that he never left the beans. Very nice. Yeah, so it, it's almost quitting time at that point, and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Jeff's going to be coming to pick me up, and my way out of here is basically uh, ratcheting down the tree and then walking in the general direction that this buck ran in. And I'm like, do I do that? Do I stay up in the tree? Do I text Jeff and tell him to wait? I don't know. I'm like, well, I thought I heard him fall, so I should just get down and at least go find the arrow. And if I find the arrow and it's full blood, I will just walk out to where I think I heard him crash. So anyway, long story short, couldn't find the arrow, couldn't find any sign, ended up walking the field edge to meet up with Jeff, and I didn't see any crushed beans or blood along the field edge, so I knew the deer didn't cross the lane that way. And um, anyway, Jeff said, well, what do you think happened? I said, I think he died in the beans. He's like, well, let's just walk back towards the shot of the, the, the scene of the shot, and we'll walk through the bean field. And so we're doing that, and I keep getting closer to the woods and closer to the woods, and we're not seeing anything. And I'm like, man, I can't believe he was this close to the woods when he turned and made that hard right. And all of a sudden, I saw beans crushed down in front of me, and I panned my flashlight over to the left, and there he was laying dead in the beans. Oh, man. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. It, it it was phenomenal. That's, that's my biggest archery buck. He dressed out at 177 pounds. Holy cow, that's a good Michigan deer. Now, uh, how how many points? Eight point? It was an eight point. Yep, it's an eight point, and it's it's probably got a 15 inch spread, something like that. But yeah, just uh, a really nice body size. Very nice. Yeah, I saw the the one picture you sent on the forums and. That's a that's a pretty looking buck. They uh those those lighter tines and that nice the nice coat that they get out there from all those beans and and corn and good nutrition. I mean that's that's a pretty buck, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. It, it was a lot of fun. The the shot part happened quick. All of the other discussion tonight was about strategies and tactics, <laughs> but when it came down to the shot, you talked about getting um, a little antsy or or, or kind of making a quick shot. I didn't have time to get nervous at all because it all just happened like in the blink of an eye. But um, I can definitely appreciate what you say because sometimes I've been in that same scenario where you kind of black out and it's like, I don't even know what just happened. Yeah, well, I was listening to you tell that that story and it sounded like you uh, held your composure pretty well there. Um, You know, you took the time to to sell the pin and and squeeze it off and – and, and that's just admirable. How, how far was that shot, you think, 30 yards? It was 30 yards. I used the 30-yard pin, and, and again, it it shot. It didn't go through the shoulder blades, but it was a little farther forward than it was right uh, in line with where you were talking about aiming. So was he so, broadside? or? Yes. Okay, yep. and so you hit him, uh, what, double long and heart? Or? I, it was probably a little above the heart, but definitely double long. And, Perfect. Yeah, I mean... It, it was quick. That's my favorite spot to to aim. You know, it can't go anywhere without lungs. So that's uh, yeah, nice shot. That's um. Thank you. How far did it run? It was probably seventy yards. Yeah, okay. But he far. was beelining. He was getting out of there fast. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Wow. So then, what did you do? You guys drag him out of the beans, or did you drive the truck out there, or what did you do next? <laughs> yeah, we drug him out. And um, at that point, I was thankful that I had not spent the morning hunting because I needed pretty much all the energy I had just to lug that thing out of there. It could have used a deer cart, you know? It's one of those times it's oh, like, yeah. hey, why don't we have a cart? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I don't have one either. So, um, <laughs> okay, so we talked about 
Well, first of all, congratulations again. That's an awesome, awesome Michigan buck, especially for that area. I've hunted out there a long time, and I shot one that uh, would get close to that, but was a little smaller, I'd say. And um, there's just a lot of pressure out that way, too. So, uh, you know, good for you guys for, for making it happen on actually a couple nice bucks. So. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, the, the pressure is something that just comes along with it. I mean, yep. there, there's a lot of folks out here that hunt, and you can go into town and, and run into uh, people that you don't even know at church or, or at your kids' activities, and they're wearing camo, and next thing you know, you're striking up a conversation. And um, that's just one of those things. I mean, it's, I'm thankful to live in a, a state and a county that has that level of participation in hunting. And, it, yeah, the pressure is going to come, come along with it. But, you know what, it's fun, and, and that's the most important part. Yeah, well said, Jason, well said. Um, now, before we get into – I want to talk about checking your deer, but what were the main three things you said played into into that hunt? I mean, I can tell you what I think they were, but what are your couple things that were really important – and the reason you killed that deer, maybe somebody can, you know, put in their pocket this weekend. Yeah, well, I I think on one hand, I just got really lucky because I wanted to hunt a different stand site. And I said, no, got to stay disciplined, got to follow the plan and not just go based on my gut feel, which, again, that's one of those past practices. I mean, years ago, it was almost like we drew straws, like, where are you going to hunt tonight? Well, I'm feeling like going here. And it, it had nothing to do with wind direction or, or weather or time of day. It was really just like a gut instinct that you'd pick. And I'll admit, sometimes we still do that. But early in the year, you know, I, I think it was really important to make sure that uh, for each of those hunts on those six different days leading up to October 18th, that we selected the stand that gave us the ability to get in and get out with um, without letting the deer know we were there. And, and I think that was number one. I mean, we saw nice bucks on five of those six hunts. Yeah, I would say that's uh, that's a very important one and one that I take very seriously. Um, well, what about food or, or feeding patterns? I mean, mid-October, you think the, the beans are brown, right? So the deer wouldn't be out in the beans. But, I mean, was, was he feeding in the beans? Uh, it's hard to say for sure, Jared. I know the one thing that, um, it's kind of funny, as I'm sitting there, I'm looking around on the forest floor, and all I can see is maple leaves. Uh-huh. And, again, this is earlier in the hunt when I'm not seeing anything, and, and I'm I'm kind of just sitting there like, okay, well, this isn't going well. And, well, you big dummy, you're hunting in a bunch of maples when all you're hearing about is how heavy the acorn crop is. <laughs> Why did you pick this spot? <laughs> so, um, you know, again, it was just the pressure thing. So I didn't want to tromp back in the woods and alert the deer. So I'm kind of on the field edge and I'm in the right wind. And, it, you know, it, it just was one of those things. It came together. It was a lot of luck. And so I think the important part, though, is that the other times we had been on that property earlier this season, we kept the same approach. Like, let's kind of work from the outside and maybe work in as the year progresses and let's make sure that we're not bumping a lot of deer. And um, that's really what I would say about that in terms of keeping the pressure low. Yeah. To answer your question, why were they in the beans? I don't know. I mean, he, he may have been coming along the edge of those beans. There's always field edge scrapes in that section. And um, that might've been part of his, his goal. Um, Maybe he was feeding on the beans. Maybe he was headed to another um, woodlot across the street. I'm really not sure. Well, a couple things there. I know when the uh, fresh maple leaves start dropping, the deer will love to eat those leaves up. Um, It's like candy from what I've heard. And then, like, on the 12th, I hunted the 12th, and I had deer feeding on beans out in front of me. I mean, I thought they were long gone maybe in the corn or or eating acorns, and sure sure enough, they were out there three of them eating beans. So I figured I'd just ask him and maybe see what, what he was up to. But, um, you know, I think your your uh, low-pressure strategy is what killed that deer. And then uh, 
for my dough, I think the just the the acorns still had to be what what they were in there for. If I could throw anything at that, I mean, I picked a nice, calm, cool night as well. Um, yep. And those are always fun to sit in, but I think just uh, it was only my second time ever at that spot, and and there were acorns everywhere. So I think uh, some of the little pressure might have had to help with that as well. Um, Okay, well, I appreciate you telling your story. Now, there's one more part I wanted to get to that you mentioned. I thought it was very important, and you tried to check your deer for CWD. Is that correct? Well, I wanted to submit it for sampling, yes. And so, but but when, you're not in a zone. You're not in the CWD zone, so you're not required to. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, still interested in in adding samples to yep, and trying to help to, I like that to the quota helping out uh, do what I can so my goal on Sunday um, after I had killed this deer and we butchered it on Saturday and so I'm starting to research well where am I go- going to go to have this deer checked and have the lymph nodes removed and I'm, I'm working in Romulus so I got to figure out where's the closest place to Romulus and it turns out it was Grass Lake uh, at least in terms of closest but still generally on the route back to Howell. So I go over to the Waterloo deer check, and I had called there ahead of time to kind of confirm the process, and the the representative there had told me ahead of time that they don't remove the lymph nodes, the DNR doesn't, uh, and that I had to contact one of the taxidermists that are on their list. So they had put out these notifications and press releases before I had seen that, but honestly, I didn't really research it that closely at the time. So, okay, fair enough. I get that. They're, they're not going to be a one-stop shop. I still got to find this taxidermist. And, but I wanted to give the DNR the harvest data, uh, pick up the, the, um, the patch, and to have the jawbone aged and, and the whole bit. So before I went over to the Waterloo deer check, I consulted the taxidermist list, located one in Pleasant Lake. It was only like 20 minutes away, uh, not too far out of the way back to Howell. So I called Larry on the way to the deer check, confirmed he would be available and that he could remove the lymph nodes. He says, no problem, come by any time. Okay, everything's going well. So I go to the deer check, they logged my information, they give me the patch. I told them I talked to Larry and that he would be submitting the lymph nodes and um, just kind of, again, confirming the process with them. And, and they seemed a little bit confused, didn't really recognize Larry's name. Um, which was weird to me because he was the closest service provider to their check station. So it's not a big deal, but it just seems like there would have been a little coordination between them before the season kicked off uh, and maybe to help people, make it easier for them to submit samples. So anyway, I make my way over to Larry's. Uh, he was happy to know that the DNR had submitted all my information online, so he didn't have to fill out the ticket and all that stuff, so that was good. And, and he just needed to pull out these lymph nodes, and I'd be on my way. But there was one problem. I put the deer head in the freezer on Saturday because I wasn't really sure when I was going to get to it. So despite the fact that it had been out all day Monday, it was still frozen. And Larry said he wasn't going to be able to remove the lymph nodes with a frozen head. So now i got to leave the buck and come back another time to pick it up. Okay. So I'm really (laughs) offering a bit of a public service announcement here that uh, I encourage you to support the DNR in collecting the data especially with respect to CWD, but you really got to plan ahead. And, um, you know, maybe I was alone in that. But if you don't have a good plan in mind to identify the nearest check and uh, and attend to that buck that you want to get the head mount for and, and get those lymph nodes removed, uh, it's really going to be easy to just kind of throw in the towel and say, forget it. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple times yesterday where I felt like doing just that. It's like, okay, I really didn't want to go over there, and I don't want to go over here, and it's already after work, and it's later in the day, and da-da-da-da-da. But, um, you know, bottom line, thanks to Larry and the other taxidermists who are willing to offer their services for this sample collection because uh, it's ultimately going to be very important. Yeah, yeah, and I encourage anybody to, uh, you know, try to help out the DNR and and our state and check your animals. for me, where my 15 acres resides, I'm required to check my my deer within 24 hours. So that's step one. And then, like you mentioned, the, the check stations, they want to keep the head. So 
I, I don't plan on cutting the head off of a deer I'd like to mount. Um, so my predicament, if I'm going to mount a deer, I have to get it checked within 24 hours, and then I have to get it to a taxidermist within the CWD zone, which is fine because mine's up in Mount Pleasant. It's about a two-hour drive, but she's in the zone. Um, and all that has to happen. It, I can check it within 24 hours, but I don't have to get the the thing to the taxidermist right away, I believe. I'm, I might have to look that back up. But the problem is I cannot leave that CWD zone with my deer. So if I shoot a buck on, say, Saturday night, and I find it at 10 p.m., or like last year, I think it was like 11 p.m., I have 24 hours to get that deer to a check station, and I don't live in the CWD zone, so I'd have to, like, hide my deer in the woods or let my neighbor hoist it up in his barn or or something while I go home, sleep, come back, get it, then get it checked, then drive it to the taxidermist because I still can't bring it out of the zone, I believe, or maybe I kind of just checked. But anyways, it, it, you're, to your point, look up the rules, come up with a game plan ahead of time so you're not, you know, sitting there, trying to figure it out. Um, in your case, you were just trying to help out and, and volunteering your deer getting checked where where I will actually be breaking the law if I don't don't follow the rules like that. So I, right. I like the fact that you wanted to bring that up, and uh, it's a huge deal right now. And, um, you know, thanks for bringing that up. I think uh, the rules yeah, need, to be, need to be checked you know, for sure. It's really kind of consistent with the theme, too, because, I mean, that required discipline as well. If, if you're committed oh, yeah. to helping the DNR collect the data, then you got to figure out a plan because the easiest thing for me to do is just say, you know what, this is just too much and it's not worth it. But I didn't want to go there. I had a plan ahead of time. And um, really, if I was going to wrap it all up and kind of create a bottom line, it's just yep. if you're a goal-oriented individual, remember that um, – all these different little incremental improvements that we talked about today, they can provide the same benefit as one breakthrough innovation. So a lot of your podcasts, Jared, you've been talking to guys that have, um, you know, limited equipment, but in some cases uh, a lot of equipment, doing a lot of work, doing big projects. But um, I'm kind of saying, you know, you, you have opportunities too to work on these small projects, incremental projects, devise a plan, work the plan. Do what you can, and don't get discouraged if you run out of time or money. It happens. I mean, you can't do it all. So do what you can in the time that you have, and next time you come back, do a little more. And, boy, Jeff and I look back, and after eight years of, of doing some of this, it's like, wow, we've really transformed not only the the landscape in terms of how we approach hunting, but also our strategies. And it's all just those little incremental improvements. And it seems to be paying off, right? Yeah, definitely. He he had sent some of those pictures to his son who lives out in Montana, and um, and his son says, "Man, you guys must really be doing something right." And um, yeah, it's just been a change because again, years ago when his son used to live out here and, and hunted out here, you know, they they did the standard firearm season, fill your tags with the first buck you see, and and approached it that way, and it's just changed a little bit we don't approach the hunting that way anymore and, and go at it differently and, and even his son from a couple thousand miles away just looking at the pictures and the results we're seeing is saying wow you guys are really doing something right exactly wow jason way to wrap that up that was perfect um i i would applaud you on the discipline you have i admire that i do that as much as I can. I'm, I'm trying to get everybody I hunt with on the same page and just to, just to not not go in there if it's wrong and, and, and wait. And uh, I really think the incremental steps is a good thing to hit on because, like you said, after a couple of years go by, you can look at what you've accomplished. And you, eight years in, you guys have killed a couple of nice eight points out there this year, and that's just that's just awesome. So... Nice job. Congratulations. I want to thank you for coming on, um, spending your time tonight talking on the podcast. So very thankful and uh, just appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Jared.
All right. Well, if anybody wants to get a hold of Jason, let me know. I can put you in touch. Another game plan episode in the books, guys. Thanks, Jason, so much for coming on and telling us about that beautiful buck you harvested. I'm going to post some pictures up on Facebook so everybody can see what that buck looks like. Um, I want to thank the listeners first off. I mean, we couldn't do it without you guys coming back, uh, you know, week after week and, and giving me your feedback and, and just and pushing me to, to keep recording and do better, and I, I love it. I'm having a great time doing this, and I just love the support from you guys. I want to keep this rolling and um, keep getting some good topics and, and game plans uh, to come as well. And uh, also back in the habitat season once that starts up again, uh, you know, towards the end of deer season. Um, you can thank our sponsors also for supporting the podcast. I'd like to thank them. Packer Max, Line of Cultipackers, and also the Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations. Both are great products that I've personally used and and love. They're, they're, they are good products. I wouldn't say that if I did not truly believe that. Um, we're adding some things to the website I want to tell you guys about. There's going to be a blog feature on there. Where we're going to put up some articles of some projects that we're working on, uh, also some, some things that some of the listeners have sent in, some of their successes with some pictures and maybe some how-tos. And then uh, if you want to hear more from us, you can find us at HabitatPodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, uh, wherever you can listen to a podcast uh, we try to be on. So be sure to check us out there. Please leave us a review. I'm still sending free decals to anybody who leaves me a good review. Um, I, I may be buying your love, and, and that's okay. The decals look cool, and I'll send one your way. Just go on there, iTunes or Spotify, leave a good review, and let me know your name, and I'll get one sent out. Uh, lastly, Facebook.com slash Habitat Podcast and Instagram at Habitat Podcast. Brian and I are uh, frequently putting up content on there. I want you guys to check out as well. Um, and just, you know, lastly, if you guys have anything at all you want to talk about, hit me up on Facebook, uh, message the podcast, and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. And and lastly, good luck this season. Enjoy your woods. Thanks for listening as we become better habitat managers, guys. We'll see you again real soon. 